I'll begin reading in Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offering, your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let us ask the Lord for his help. Lord, you told us that when Jesus opened the book to teach his disciples and he showed them himself in the scriptures, even in Genesis, Lord, you said, that their hearts burned within them. So this morning calls our hearts to burn within us as we look for Christ in the scriptures and by your spirit's power, open our eyes to see him. In Jesus' name, amen. As you've kind of picked up on the theme, 
here this morning in the early church. This is to say before the church had what we call the New Testament. So when they only had half of a Bible, it was the practice of the apostles of the church to preach about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. In fact, that's what the Gospels are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really are the story of Jesus using countless Old Testament references. Though the Jesus story is the same in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are a little bit different from one another because each of those writers is emphasizing different aspects of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And as we saw in our scripture reading, the men who wrote the Gospels were taught to write that way by Jesus himself. Remember what John read from Luke. And beginning with Moses, which is Genesis, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then following that, those who preached the gospel in the early days did so in accordance with these same teachings. We see this in 1 Corinthians Paul says to the Corinthian church, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And by Scriptures, Paul means Scriptures like our text this morning. So in the spirit of the first Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead and preached that first sermon, To his disciples on the road to Emmaus, all we are going to do is read the story of Abraham and Isaac and look for Christ. And there are a number of connections to Christ in our text this morning. I will show you only 10. If you you want to come back later or or join me for lunch, I'll show you 20 more. So, So here we go, 10 ways that the story of Isaac's sacrifice points us to Christ. And if you're of a writing age and you're under 10, if you can get all 10 of these and give them to me uh, at, at the end of this morning's worship, I will come up with some sort of prize for you. I, I just thought of that now, but you can trust me. Uh, I, I will be faithful to my word. You might have to come back though. Uh, so our first connection Connection number one is the testing of Abraham. The testing of Abraham. Verse one says, after these things, God tested Abraham. This testing of Abraham is a test of trust and obedience. God has called Abraham to trust him and to be obedient to him because Adam in the garden of Eden at the beginning of Genesis had failed in the test of trust and obedience. God created man, and we see this way back in Genesis 2. God created man, or Genesis 1 rather, to bear his image and to spread his glory. And what that requires is that man trust that God is worthy of that. That he is good, that he is just, and he's faithful to his word. Through Adam, the glory of God was supposed to be spread through the world. But Adam failed the test. He believed the lie from the serpent that God was not to be trusted. And so Adam disobeyed God, and instead of God's glory being spread through the world, through the one man and his descendants, death and sin spread to all the world like a disease. 
But God's plan of redemption was from the very beginning to restore humanity. To restore humanity to that rightful role of image bearing and glory spreading. And so unfolds his plan to do that through a new man, a new Adam. And Abraham, as we've been seeing in Genesis, is the man through whom the new Adam, known as the offspring, will come. And God is teaching Abraham that he is really trustworthy. God is trustworthy. God is faithful to his word. And Abraham has seen that reality. Throughout his entire life, Abraham has seen that again and again and again. And then that climaxed, most of all, with the birth of baby Isaac. But the point of the test here, at the beginning of 22, is that if it will be Abraham's family through whom the glory of God will be made known to the, to the world, Abraham must have a right view of God. His, his doctrine of God must be lived out through faith, hence the test. Now the connection to Jesus is this. Jesus was also tested. Immediately after he was baptized, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness. That means God led him to be tested. Just as God led Abraham to be tested, God led Jesus to be tested. And his testing consisted of three temptations from Satan. Will Jesus trust the word of God? Will he entrust his life to God? And will he entrust his inheritance to God? And this testing came up again and again and again throughout Jesus' life. But it ultimately came at the end of his life when the Lord commanded Jesus to go to the cross, to trust him even through death. The true Messiah, according to the Psalms, was to be one who would trust the Lord in obedience all the way to and through death. Jesus passed the test. Amen? And he was raised from the dead. The second connection to Christ is this issue of human sacrifice. And if you're writing these down and you need to know how to spell sacrifice, you can just use phonetics. Uh, You can repeat it to me later on. The second connection to Christ is the issue of human sacrifice. And we see this connection in verse 2 of our text. Look at verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So the command that, that, that God gives Abraham is to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. Now so far in Genesis, there have been some altars built and there have been a handful of sacrifices But only one time in the book of Genesis have we seen something described as a burnt offering. This is actually a technical word, and it's something described in the law in Leviticus. A burnt offering is made as an atoning sacrifice. So if you, if you look back to the first time that we saw this word, Noah had slaughtered a number of animals after the flood, and he offered them as a burnt offering to the Lord. And it was these sacrifices that appeased the Lord. If you'll remember what happens, the Lord smells the, 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 the meat cooking, and he says, never again will I destroy the earth. Noah's sacrifice turned God's wrath through atoning for sin. 
So here God is commanding Abraham, do the same thing. Only this time it isn't animals, is it, that are being offered as a burnt offering. But it is Abraham's son, the long-awaited son, the son of the promise. He is to be the atoning sacrifice. Now, why must it be a human who is sacrificed? Well, this is evidence to us as we've been reading Genesis. It's evidence to us that all of those countless sacrifices, all of the the many, many, many animals that Noah burned as a sacrifice for sin, as a burnt offering, all of those animals were not enough to remove sin. After the flood, there was further rebellion against God. The people even built a tower to reach to God and bring God down to them in their pride. And it, and it was immediately after that incident at the Tower of Babel that God called Abraham. That order of things was intentional. Humans, mankind, we, we're still sinful. So Abraham and the nation who will come from him and the offspring who will come from him are a response to the human sin problem that still exists on the earth. This whole Abraham story has shown us that the sin that indwells humanity, our rebellion, is our own guilt and it is ongoing. And it cannot be atoned for by the blood of animals that Noah shed. The son of the promise, the offspring from Abraham, must be the one to atone for the sins of humanity. The son of the promise must be the one whose sacrifice brings forgiveness for the sinfulness of humanity. That's why Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son. And it is why Christ was ultimately sacrificed as an atonement for sin. You see, in the story of Isaac, the angel of the Lord, as we read, who actually is the pre-incarnate son of God, the, the angel of the Lord stayed Abraham's hand. He stopped him. He held back the knife, and he provided an animal. And thus began the practice of Abraham's people, the Israelites, to offer animals to atone for their sins. But what was clued into us there is that ultimately it must be the son of Abraham. The true offspring who will fulfill true and final atonement for sin. Noah's sacrifice of animals leading to Abraham's sacrifices of his son are are like an analogy to Israel's sacrifice of animals under the law leading to God's sacrifice of his son for us. Well, it is in God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his son that we see the third and fourth pointers to Christ. Look, look again at the way that God commands Abraham to take Isaac to the mountain. Look at verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now technically, Isaac is not Abraham's only son, is he? There has been a great deal of ink spilled in Genesis about this other boy, Ishmael. He's still out there somewhere. But the God-ordained disinheritance of Ishmael in Genesis 21 has left Abraham with just one son, Isaac. Now, the son of the promise can be described to Abraham as your only son whom you love. 
And here we see our two pointers to Jesus, numbers three and four. We'll start with number three, Jesus, the son whom you love, the beloved son. So Jesus is first of all, the beloved son of God. When Jesus is first introduced to the world in his baptism, the Lord said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or we could just as easily translate that, this is my son whom I love. And then God says the same thing when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter and James and John see Elijah and Moses and Jesus speaking to one another. And Jesus shines brightly with the glory of God. And God says again, this is my son whom I love. The gospel writers in telling us of that, those events are not just telling us that the father loves the son. They are foreshadowing the sacrifice that is to come, the offering of the Son whom God loves, the beloved Son. So that's number three, the beloved Son. Number four, the only Son. The fourth connection is Jesus is also the only Son of God. If you know the Bible, you probably know John 3.16. This is the way that God loved the world, that he gave his only son. Or John, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. When John, the apostle, calls Jesus God's only son, he is teaching a theological truth that there is one within the Trinity who relates to the Father as son. But more than that, John is using Genesis 22 language, Isaac and Abraham language, to show us that God's love for humanity, his willingness to sacrifice his only son, is like Abraham's love for God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Or to bring it home, God's love for you demonstrated in the offering of his only son is like Abraham's love for God demonstrated in the offering of his only son. Only God's love for you is far, far greater. The fifth connection is the third day. The fifth is the third. The third day. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And if you were to open your Bible and read it from front to back and you search the entire Old Testament, you will not find a prophecy that says, and the Messiah will be crucified and on the third day be raised up. It's just not there. But you will find massively significant events occurring on the third day. Events that show God's presence and his hand in directing the story of redemption. And that's what Paul means when he says, in accordance with the scriptures. So in in Exodus 19, well actually let's start in Genesis. At the end of Genesis, in the story of Joseph, Joseph prophesies... That the man of bread and the man of wine will meet their fates on the third day. One will be hung from a tree and one will be raised up to new life. 
That's pretty interesting. In Exodus chapter 19, the Lord appears on the mountain on the third day to initiate the covenant with his people. In 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah is healed on the third day and he goes into the temple of God. In Hosea 6, the prophet says that Israel will be punished and raised up on the third day. Then you know Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days. Well, in verse 4 of our text, we see the very first occurrence of this third day theme in the scriptures. It is on the third day of his journey towards the death of Isaac. That look at verse 4. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And remember what that lifting up the eyes language means in Genesis. How important that is. The, the lifting up of the eyes, whenever we see that, that means that Abraham is seeing by faith. When, when, when God, through his spirit, helps Abraham to, to see, to open his eyes to something of the redemptive story, he's giving him eyes of faith. So that's what Abraham's doing here. He lifts up his eyes. God shows him the mountain, and it is on that third day that he sees the mountain of sacrifice. And then look what he says in verse 5. And remember here, he's seeing with eyes of faith. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Come again. He's coming back with the boy. Implied there in, is, the, is the word we. We will come again to you. God has told Abraham to go to the mountain to sacrifice his son, and yet Abraham tells the servants, we're coming back. To which Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, when tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of which it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered, Abraham considered, that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So why, why did Abraham tell his servants that he and the boy were coming back if God told him to go sacrifice the boy? Because Abraham knew that even if he had to go through with the sacrifice, that God would raise the boy from the dead. In his heart, Abraham trusted that God would even through death, fulfill his promise to make a nation from this offspring. That the nations would be blessed through this offspring. God could and would resurrect the promised offspring. And this would happen when? On the third day. So to summarize the fifth point, Isaac was, as Hebrews says, figuratively received back from the dead on the third day. And as we celebrate every Sunday, Jesus Christ was physically, literally, actually raised from the dead on the third day. Amen? Amen. The sixth connection is the burden carried, the burden carried to the place of sacrifice. So God commands Abraham to take the boy to the mountain. And God's going to show him the, the, the mountain that God's going to show him. And Abraham eagerly obeys. He rises up early in the morning. He gathers what he needs for the journey. He takes two servants and a donkey. And they go their way. When they get to the mountain that God has shown them, Abraham tells the servants and the donkey to stay behind because they're coming back because he believes in the resurrection. And then in verse 6 he says, And Abraham took the wood 
of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Did you see that? So if you're seeing this clearly, Isaac, the one who is to be sacrificed, carries the wood that he will be bound to and sacrificed upon as an atonement for sins. Likewise, Jesus carried his own wooden cross. After Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified, John 19 says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Jesus carried his wood as well. Number seven, the father carries the fire and the knife. Look at the second part of verse six. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he, Abraham, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. The fire and the knife are the means of death, the means of the sacrifice. The fire is perhaps a torch. Some suggest it's a flint rock to to make a spark. The knife is, of course, the cutting instrument. These details show us that it is the Father who will carry out the sacrifice. Likewise with the sacrifice of Jesus. Peter, in the book of Acts, in his first sermon on Pentecost, tells us that all that happened to Christ on the cross happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The prophet Isaiah said that it was was the will of the Lord to crush him. And even Jesus praised this accordingly. And the night before his death, he, he prayed three times to the Father. He's not, he wasn't pleading with Pilate. He wasn't pleading with the Jews. He was pleading with the Father. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, though it was the Jews who cried out for Jesus' death, And though it was Pilate and the Romans who crucified him, it was the Father who carried the fire and the knife. Number eight, Mount Moriah. In verse two of our passage, the Lord tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, which a place we haven't seen yet in Genesis, and then to one of the mountains there in that land. And it is there on that mountain that the atoning sacrifice will be made. Now, this place will come to be called Mount Moriah, and it will come up again in the Scriptures. Mount Moriah is the place that Solomon will build the temple. But before there's a temple there on that mountain, there is a threshing floor where the chaff and the barley grains were separated by a man named Ornan the Jebusite, the man who owned the land. And let me tell you the story of the threshing floor. Several generations will pass from Genesis 22, from Isaac, on down the line will come a man named David. David is God's anointed king over Israel. David is the first priestly king of God's people. And out of David will come eventually the Messiah. But David, like Abraham, endured a number of tests. 
a test of obedience to God. And one of those tests that David failed in was whether to take a census of the people. Rather than trusting that God was with Israel and his power would protect Israel, David wanted to see just how powerful he was because of the strength of his army. This was in direct violation to God's command not to do such a thing. God wanted David to trust him, not the armies. Well, in response to David's sin, the Lord brings a great plague upon the people of Israel, and 70,000 people are killed. And just as the Lord is, is over Jerusalem, about to destroy the entire city, he stops and he comes to the threshing floor of Ornah on Mount Moriah. And there the angel of the Lord meets King David. And listen to what David says to the Lord there who has appeared to him. Then David spoke to the Lord. This is from 2 Samuel, if you're taking notes, 2 Samuel 24. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So, essentially, David's request on Mount Moriah is that the Lord would punish the king instead of the sheep, which is a reversal of what happened on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, isn't it? Where the sheep, the ram, is offered up in exchange for the boy king. See, David's Mount Moriah event then leads to the building of an altar of sacrifice and worship on that threshing floor, and then David's son, Solomon, builds the temple, exactly where that altar stood on that same threshing floor, on this same Mount Moriah. The temple. The temple is the place where sins are atoned for, following our theme of atonement. The temple is the place where sins are atoned for. It is the place where God is worshipped by his people and the glory of God is to be shown to the world. That temple was built where the anointed king offered his life in exchange for Israel. And it is the same place where the ram was offered long ago in exchange for the king. To which you might be thinking, oh, this must be where the cross is. No, no. It's not. Actually, Golgotha isn't there on Mount Moriah since that would require that it be inside the temple. Jesus' crucifixion took place outside of Jerusalem in accordance with Jewish law. But with Jesus' death, the final atonement for sins occurred. The atonement that the blood of the bulls and the goats in the temple could never accomplish. And so Jesus then entered, after his death, the true temple, the heavenly temple, in the presence of God. And he offered his blood. And through that propitiation, God was satisfied. And the Lord sent the Holy Spirit as the blessing to the nations through which the offspring of Abraham was promised. The Spirit was poured out onto God's people. So because Jesus is the one through whom the glory of God is known, and because Jesus is the one who atones for our sins, and because it is through Jesus that we worship God, and because Jesus says he's the temple, 
Jesus is the temple, not Mount Moriah. And because the church is Christ's body, the place of worship now for the people of God, we don't go to Mount Moriah. The place of worship is wherever the body of Christ is gathered together and the Spirit is present among them. So there is a connection between Jesus and Mount Moriah. Christ fulfilled on the cross what was foreshadowed on Mount Moriah. And because the final sacrifice has been made and the Spirit has now been poured out and God's presence is is ever with His people, there's no longer any sense in going to Mount Moriah. The glory of God is now made known through the church. And of the church, Jesus says, the gates of hell, that is, the gates of death, will never prevail against it. And if you look at verse 17, the Lord says to Abraham, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Connection number nine, the willing sacrifice. We're close. We're close. Number nine, the willing sacrifice. We sang on Good Friday, and we sing every Good Friday, see the destined day arise, see a willing sacrifice. And in that song, we are singing of the one who willingly went to the cross. Jesus did that as the offspring of Abraham, the fulfillment of what we see here with Isaac, because Isaac too was a willing sacrifice. Look again at verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, we don't know how old exactly Isaac is here. We do know that he's old enough and strong enough to carry a lot of wood up a mountain on his own. And a young man of that strength could also very likely overpower a man who is well past the century mark now. Abraham is old, old, old now. He could not realistically bind up Isaac and lay him on the altar if Isaac were putting up a fight, could he? Not to mention at any point, Isaac could just run away. And yet, Isaac willingly submits himself to be sacrificed. He never puts up a struggle. He doesn't say a word while any of this is happening. In fact, even though we often read Isaiah 53 verse 7 as pointing to Christ, it could just as well be pointing back to Isaac. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaac opened not his mouth. He didn't fight. And like Isaac willingly went to the altar of sacrifice, so too did Jesus go to the cross. He didn't fight back when he was arrested in the garden. He didn't fight back when he was falsely accused by the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. He didn't defend himself when he was before Herod. He didn't defend himself when he was before Pilate. He was silent as they bound him. He was silent as they drove the nails. At any moment, from the arrest all the way to his last breath on the cross, he could have called down angels from heaven 
to overpower those who were torturing him, those who were killing him, but he didn't. The entire time, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. The entire time, he was like Isaac, the offspring of Abraham. And that brings us to Christ's connection number 10, faith. What gave Isaac the trust to willingly submit himself like this to be sacrificed? Isaac benefited from the faith of his father. More than that, I think we could say Isaac was living in the faith of his father. Isaac belonged to his father. Abraham would never have set out on this journey if he didn't trust that the Lord would fulfill his promises through this strange, strange command. The Lord had promised Abraham an offspring through whom would come the nation. And here is that offspring. Abraham is sure of it, but he doesn't have a nation yet. The nations aren't blessed yet through this boy. But because Abraham trusts that God is faithful, he knows that regardless of what God commands, God will be faithful to his promises. Even if God commands him to to sacrifice the, the boy, God will be faithful to his promises to bring a nation from Isaac. We call this faith. Faith is that mystical collaboration between belief and the will. Abraham believed that God would be faithful to his promises. And his expression of of, of that belief, his lived out expression, what we see is his faith, his confidence in things hoped for, his willingness to obey the Lord. And faith really is the issue in Abraham's story. This big question throughout Abraham's story is, Will he trust the Lord or will he not? The question was never, does Abraham believe that God exists? And the question was never, does Abraham understand that God has made these promises? The question is a matter of faith. Will Abraham trust that God is faithful to his word? It is not only that Abraham must mentally assent to the truth but that his will, his his volition, be so converted by that truth that he will live in that reality, that he will cling to God and lean on God and trust in God in all things. In the first place we see this faith is in the obedience of setting out on that journey, that journey to this unknown place that God's going to show him. Where are we going, Dad? I don't know. God's going to show me. I trust him. And all the while along that journey, Isaac is seeing his father's trust in the Lord. They're going a long, long way from home just to make a sacrifice. From Isaac's perspective, a sacrifice could just as well be out back behind the tent. But Abraham is intent on honoring the Lord. The journey to Moriah is an expression of faith. And when they get to the mountain, as we saw earlier, Abraham leaves behind the servants and Isaac hears him say, stay here, we're coming back. That's an expression of faith. And Abraham set out on the mountain in faith, believing that God could raise the boy from the dead. And as they're climbing the mountain, Isaac asks that burning question, dad, where's the sacrifice? 
Wood, fire, knife. Where's the lamb? And what does Abraham through faith say? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, and implied that both of them together that we saw in verse 8, that clause built into that is the idea that, that Isaac was satisfied with Abraham's answer. And so he willingly followed the man of faith. As long as Abraham trusted in the coming substitute to atone for sins and the coming resurrection, Isaac was benefiting from Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith compelled Isaac to radical obedience. Jesus, like Abraham, also trusted that there was a substitute. He trusted that God would provide a lamb who provides atonement. And he also trusted in the coming resurrection. Jesus knew all along he was the substitute. He said in John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. That is, in exchange for the sheep, as a substitute for the sheep of Israel, echoing King David on the threshing floor. And in Matthew's gospel, when, when Jesus begins to make his journey to Jerusalem, or more explicitly, as he begins to make his journey to Mount Moriah, all along that journey, he keeps telling his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And it is this confidence in his identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it is his confidence in God's power to raise him from the dead. It is that faith borne out by the Holy Spirit in him that compelled him to the cross. Jesus believed that God would raise him up. And so he willingly submitted himself as the Lamb, the substitute for sins. And there's a way in which, just as Isaac benefited from the father's faith, his father's faith, we benefit from Jesus' faith infinitely. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. His faith led to his sacrifice for us. And so his atoning blood covers our sin. Like the ram in the thicket slain for Isaac, Christ was slain for you. And his willingness to go to the cross for you comes from his faith. Jesus believed the faithfulness of God's word. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death. Jesus believed that. That was God's promise to him, his promise to the Messiah, and Jesus claimed that as his own. I will not be abandoned in Sheol. I will rise again by God's power. He believed that God would raise him from the dead, and that belief was lived out in willful obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. His faith in God's faithfulness to raise him held him to the cross and into and through death. And God did raise him. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In Christ is the defeat of death. So it is through Christ's lived out faith, which is no longer faith, but sight now, that you benefit. In Christ is the forgiveness of sins. In Christ is your acceptance before God. In Christ is the defeat of death. And the faith to follow him also comes from him. The spirit sent by Christ binds us to Christ. The spirit bears out in us the faith of Christ. That's why we're here. On the first day of every week, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead because we have a faith in Christ from the Spirit. We believe God's promise to us that in Christ, we also will be resurrected from the dead. And hoping that, trusting that that is true, compels our wills to live in Christ even now. And that's faith. That's what faith is. The faith that we have in Jesus is, first of all, trusting that he is the Christ. That's not just a last name. That's a title. He is the one who was promised. He is the one who brings atonement for sin, forgiveness for sin. In other words, he is the fulfillment of the Isaac story. And secondly, our faith in him is that he is the one who defeated death. And here's what that faith looks like. If you've been forgiven in Christ, you have already been made right before God. You have already been given peace with God in and through Christ. Though you were born a sinner, you were born again by the Spirit into righteousness in Christ. And you have right standing before God. You have peace with God. So you can now live in that reality. You can live as one who is forgiven. You can live as one who has been given the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to God, joyful, radical obedience. Secondly, trusting that Jesus is the Christ who was raised means you have the hope of the resurrection. You do not have to live in panic, in anxiety, And in the fear of death, you live in the hope of eternal life. Freedom from sin and freedom from death through faith in Christ. This is the Christian life. It's more than belief. It's more than understanding. It's a matter of faith where your inner will is by the Spirit's power, married to your belief, and you live in Christ. If you do not have this life, I would invite you this morning to receive Christ, that you would entrust your life to him, hand your life to him as Abraham gave Isaac to the Father. Entrust your life to God, and so receive the Son in exchange, and receive the resurrection as your hope. Amen.